Good morning. How is everyone? Good. We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 today. In verse 1 it says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, today we come before you and ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, we thank you for the singing and us being able to worship you with our voices and offer you a sacrifice of praise. We thank you that our brothers and sisters in Belize can join us once again. We pray your blessing upon Elohim Community Church and the members there that you would continue to lead and guide them, God, that you continue to have them be salt and light uh, to their community. And Father, I ask the same for us as well. Help us to be people that are fast about your word, fast about uh, believing it, and fast about putting it into action. Thank you, Father, that we have the privilege to gather as brothers and sisters today, to fellowship with one another, uh, to have communion, uh, physical display, of what you did for us through your son Jesus on the cross. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for forgiving us through Christ that it's in him we have life and nothing or no one else. Continue to be with us, Lord. Continue to bless us with your presence as we continue on. We ask this with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen. Last week, we looked at the faithfulness of God in two respects. Uh, The first was because God is faithful, he will establish us, he will strengthen us, and he will help us to stand firm, whatever might come our way. And then we saw that God is faithful, um, and because of that, he will guard us against the evil one. And we talked about how the only influence Satan has in our lives is the influence that God allows. This week, we're going to keep looking at the faithfulness of God, and we're going to see three more ways that God is faithful. Um, And I kind of want to give us maybe a a broader picture before we uh, specifically look at those three ways, because when we think about the faithfulness of God, what are we really talking about? I mean, we're talking about an attribute of who he is. It's a description linked closely and maybe even a subset of his truthfulness, but think about how God is faithful in regards to his word. If he says it, he'll do it, right? If he commits to it, it's going to happen. If he promises it, he'll follow through. How often will he follow through? Every single time. So we don't have to wonder, we don't have to question, we don't have to be unsure 
He is faithful. In fact, if you're in 2 Thessalonians, just turn back to 1 Thessalonians 5, and it's kind of how we ended our study of 1 Thessalonians 5, towards the very end in chapter 5, we're told this in verse 24, he who calls you is what? Faithful. And then it says, after that what? He will surely do it. He will bring it to completion. Why will he do that? Because he's faithful. And this, friends, this idea of God being faithful and being faithful to his word and whatever he commits to, he does. Whatever he says, he follows through with. So key is this attribute that we actually see this name, this word ascribed to Jesus in the book of Revelation. Hold your place in 2 Thessalonians, but just turn briefly to Revelation in chapter 19. Early in the chapter, earlier in the chapter of Revelation 19, we get the marriage supper of the Lamb starting in verse 6, and it goes on. And then it says, verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then he goes on. I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Who are we talking about here? Jesus, right? His clothes is, his cl he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. But notice, back in verse 11, we get this imagery of him sitting on this horse, and the one sitting on it is called, what? Faithful and true. Again, the idea of truthfulness and faithfulness are, are closely linked together. You could call faithfulness a subset of truthfulness. To be faithful, you have to be truthful. You have to stick to what you say you're going to do. But here it's, it's ascribed to Jesus. Faithful. He is called faithful. We have a Savior who is a faithful Savior. He is faithful through and through and through. So God's faithful to his word. Jesus himself is faithful. Well, I mean, you can just look at, at, at his life, right? Every step of the way, what was he doing? Submitting to the will of the Father. Faithful to the mission he was given, to the words he was given. He followed out what God called him to do. Faithful. So God is, is faithful to his word, and God's also faithful to, to his creation. Think about that for a moment. I mean, we're his creation, but I'm talking like all of creation. He doesn't abandon it to utter decay. Think of what it says in Romans 8. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. We've looked at it the last few months a couple times. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope. It's and then it stops right there, right? In hope of what? 
that it's going to be redeemed, that it's going to be renewed. That when Christ comes back, not only will we be renewed and receive our glorified bodies, but the creation itself will be made new. Will God ever destroy the earth again with a flood? No. How do we know that, though? Because he said it, right? He said it. And when, when he said it, you can hold on to that as a promise. He doesn't even have to say, I promise. Like, and that's what kind of Jesus is talking about on the Sermon on the Mount. Like, our yes is yes and our no is no. We shouldn't have to precede it with, with anything whatsoever because we should be so truthful and faithful ourselves that when we say something, people know, oh, okay, yes, he's faithful to what he says he's going to do. He doesn't have to swear by anything. No, he said it. He's going to follow through with it. So God says, I'm not going to do that again. He said he wouldn't do it. Do we believe him? Yes. So we want to, if we can believe him in certain parts of the scriptures, friends, the idea is, is he's shown himself faithful. We can believe him in the other parts because he will continue to show himself faithful. And that's what he has done. It's interesting in 1 Peter 4. Just turn there briefly. 1 Peter 4. We see something ascribed to God. And this is in the context of, of, of suffering. In verse 19, the very end, it says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to who? A faithful creator. A faithful creator while doing good. So we're, you know, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the things that we're going through, in the midst of the things that we're dealing with, entrust our souls to the God who created us. Have confidence that what he has already promised, he will bring to pass. And even if you think about the father's role in creation, what's the role that the son plays? What is he doing that Colossians tells us about? I mean, he's sustaining creation. He's part of, of the creation and making it come to pass, but he's also sustaining it. It says in Colossians 1, for by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created. So he, I mean, he is involved in creation. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Spirit's hovering in the very beginning, right, over the, uh, over the earth, they're very much involved in creation. They have a vested interest in the very thing they, they created. And they're just not going to leave it alone and let it, let it go its way. Now sin comes, and what does it do? It, it affects things. And we're living in a fallen world. We are fallen, and we have the effects of a fallen world, the physical effects of a fallen world. But God does not abandon his creation. So the seasons come and go. The sun still shines. The earth still rotates. God sustains his creation. He's faithful to it. And we get this, this picture of God's faithfulness, and when you see his faithfulness, like over and over again throughout the scriptures, he's faithful to Israel. They're faithless. He's faithful. Over and over you see how God interacts with his children. And he is faithful. 
And when we see it commented on, displayed, even extolled, it confirms to us repeatedly how faithful God is. And that's, that is the backdrop to what we read here in 2 Thessalonians. When the scriptures make a statement about God, it's not just like one little verse in isolation. That can get you into trouble if you just isolate verses by themselves. But it's with the whole Bible in mind when we read verses. And it's not like God says, oh, I'm going to be faithful here and over here and over here and, and not over here. And, and it's not like he says, oh, I'm going to be faithful to you and you and you on this side of the room, but not faithful to you over here. I mean, it's not like that. The overwhelming tide of truth is that God is faithful all the time to his children all the time. We don't have to wonder about it. So when we're, when we're talking about this attribute of God, we, we have to be careful about our approach to understanding who God is. Because here's the thing. We can feel, if we're not careful, we can feel differently about God based on our circumstances. And that can be dangerous. I mentioned last week the, uh, an, an elderly lady that passed away. Uh, <clears throat> her husband had died many, many, many years before from cancer. And it, and it sent that family into a tailspin. And they questioned the goodness of God. They were mad at God. And most, if, if maybe not all of them, turned away from God. Why? Because circumstances affected how they viewed God. It's a very dangerous thing to do. And so we end up in a, in, a, in a mindset like, my life is going good, therefore I like God. But then the next day, or the next week, or the next month, it might be, oh, my life stinks. And so oh, I'm mad at God. And then a couple weeks or months later, oh, my life is comfortable. So then, then we like God again. And then a couple weeks or months or even years later, like, oh, everything is messed up in my life, so I'm mad at God again. And then, I mean, it's just like this seesaw. If, if we base it on circumstances, our view of God, we're just going to be a, a seesaw our entire life. Don't let your circumstances dictate the truth. Okay, that means the truth will change every day. However the wind blows your emotions, you'll be all over the place. You'll be like James talks about, like a wave tossed to and fro. So we want, we want facts before feelings. Truth before emotion. I mean, think for a moment on God's faithfulness to his own son. We get in the Psalms, what's called the, the Messianic Psalms. They're, you know, prophecies talking about Jesus We'll look at just a couple so you can see the faithfulness that God has to his very own son. Look at Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16 is one of those messianic psalms. He says in verse 10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
or let your Holy One see corruption. And was that fulfilled with Jesus when he died? Did God abandon him on the cross and in the grave? No. Did he let him rot? No. What did he do after three days? He rose him up. Look what he says in Psalm 110. This is an awesome verse that, that we have in the Psalms here. It's repeated a couple times in the New Testament. Another Messianic Psalm, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, it can be a little challenging potentially to understand this if we don't understand the different lords being talked about in this passage. Uh, all of your versions very likely have the first lord in all caps, correct? Yep. So anytime it's in all caps in the Old Testament, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Uh, maybe the King James might translate it Jehovah. But anytime uh, in the Old Testament, uh, not anytime, but many times in the Old Testament when you see just a capital L, Lord, like the second time, and then it's just lowercase, uh, like we might normally expect, that's the word Adonai. Okay, so Yahweh, and, and both those are used in reference uh, to the triune God, Yahweh specifically, um, but also Lord. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, Yahweh says to my Adonai, so this is the Father talking to the Son. The Father says to the Son, essentially, sit at my right hand. What's Jesus doing? Sitting at his right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, that, that was accomplished on the cross and, and through the resurrection. We haven't seen the complete fulfillment of it, but he totally obliterated the dominions and rulers and authorities in the heavenly places by the cross. So <clears throat> they're already kind of at that footstool. It'll be a little bit more complete once he returns, and as well as any principalities and, and rulers and authorities on this earth. But, but God has a faithfulness to his son. Turn about oh, a few chapters back to Psalm 91. Another messianic psalm. We'll pick it up in verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You're like, hey, I think I've heard this before. Maybe, not, I mean, apart from Psalm 91. It sounds a little bit familiar, right? Where's, that, where's it coming from in the New Testament? That's right. In the, in the wilderness, when Christ is, is tempted... And let's just pick up the context there because I want to make a, a, a point here for y'all. Look at Matthew 5. Sorry, Matthew 4. This is the temptation. In verse 3 of Matthew 4, it says, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And this is where he quotes the psalm. I mean, Satan always will try to attack us using God's very words twisted as he sees fit and taken out of context. Be careful. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. I mean, that's a, that's a true verse. And Satan is here trying to use it to do what? Tempt. 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 Tempt Jesus. Right? Yeah, the Father would intercede, but what's Jesus' reply? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. So yeah, would those angels guard him? It's a promise. He's committing to it. He said it. They would do it. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. The father was committed to his son. And Satan tries and comes along every time, every, every temptation here, twisting the words, twisting the words, twisting the words. That's one of Satan's ploys. He tries to take the word of God and twist it and make it say things it doesn't say. That's why we need to make sure we know the whole, entire word of God. Satan will try to whisper all sorts of things in our ears. Okay? We fight back with the word of God, knowing it fully and completely, standing on what it says, not what we think. And then we see that God is faithful to his children. We already, see, uh, we already saw two things he does for us. He establishes us. He guards us. Listen, here's what uh, Louis Burkhoff, famous Presbyterian theologian, said, answering the question, why is God's faithfulness so important to us? And, and he's talking about us believers. He says, it is the ground of their confidence the foundation of their hope, and the cause of their rejoicing. It saves them from the despair to which their own unfaithfulness might easily lead. It gives them courage to carry on in spite of their failures and fills their hearts with joyful anticipations even when they are deeply conscious of the fact that they have forfeited all the blessings of God. That's what it does. He is faithful when we are not faithful. He comes through even though we drop the ball all the time. So because the Lord is faithful in all the ways that we've just seen, look back at 2 Thessalonians. Because he's faithful, we can have confidence in him. Verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. We know he'll do what he says he'll do. He'll follow through. And that gives us confidence. What kind of confidence is this? It's the confidence that he's going to work in our lives. It goes on. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Just like Paul has confidence in the Thessalonians, we can have confidence that we 
that God will work in our lives. Why? Because he is faithful. Think about confidence here. It's you're so convinced about something that you trust the person saying it will follow through with it. You're so convinced about something that you trust the person saying it will follow through with it. It communicates the idea of conviction and certainty that something is indeed the case. But here's the thing. What is the root of this certainty? We have confidence that he's going to work in our lives, but what is the root of that? It is not the effectiveness of Paul and his other missionary brothers and sisters. They were effective, but that's not the root. And it's not the resolve of the Thessalonians. Okay? Applied to today, what's the root of our certainty? It's not the effectiveness of any great preachers or teachers or authors or theologians. That's not the root of our certainty. And it's not our own resolve. Oh, I'm going to you know, pick myself up by my own bootstraps. Not our resolve. Oh, I'm going to do this. No, it is the Lord himself. That is the root of the certainty. That is the root of the confidence. We have confidence in the Lord. And because of that, we have confidence he'll work in our lives. Because this is true, that God will work in our lives, then we can, with confidence, say a few things. We can walk in obedience. Amen? Amen. We can do the things commanded of us. We can fulfill the commands of Scripture. Yes, we can. Again, not on our own resolve, not from others, but rooted in God himself. We can have the confidence. The same confidence Paul says of the Thessalonians is true for us in Christ. The scriptures here, they express a great confidence that you can do this. So you might say, oh, I'm struggling with this and this. You can overcome it. You can overcome it. Yes, you can. And you say, I've messed up so bad there's no hope. You can overcome it. You can overcome it. Yes, you can. Not on your own, not your own resolve, not your own strength, not any ability, but because of what God has already done for you in his son Jesus. All right? He has filled you with his very own spirit. You have what you need. He has strengthened you. He has empowered you. So yes, you can. What's it grounded in? Not in you. It's grounded in your heavenly father. So you can have confidence that he will work in your life. I don't know about you, but I, I mean, God still has got a lot of work to do in me. And, and I know y'all, and he's got a lot of work to do in you all too, all right? I mean, but I'm pretty encouraged by that, that he's going to keep working. All right, I'm sure there's a long list. I'm glad he doesn't show me it, okay? But long list of things that he's got for me that he's working on. At the proper time, he's bringing those things in, right? But confidence that he will keep working. 
that he's going to keep molding and shaping you. You get tripped up, yes. I get tripped up, yes. And he picks us up, he, he dusts us off, but the confidence that he will keep working. And here's the thing. We can have that confidence, but we also have confidence that he will work in the lives of believers around us. Because sometimes we're like, oh, well, I want, I want that person to change. Well, let God do his work in his time. And don't try and be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. Okay, there's one Holy Spirit, and you're not him. So focus, you know, we need to focus on letting God work on us, and then let God focus on working on those people. But here's the thing. Sometimes what happens is, you know, we learn some great insight, or we change our views on something, and, and it's major for us. You know, we, we finally realize, you know, this particular thing of, of Christian truth, and like the light bulb goes off. I mean, we're saved, and we're walking with the Lord, but we we grab onto this particular truth, and it's a true truth. It's, it's absolutely true. It's objectively true. And we're like, man, I, I never realized that before. And then, and then what do we do? Like, we turn around and, and start criticizing people for the very thing that, that we were doing and thinking just like a week ago. And probably been doing and thinking for the past 10 years. And we're like, well, what's their problem? Well, it's the same problem you had a week ago. We need to give people some grace. Like, every, God has us, you know, working on a path towards sanctification, becoming molded into the image of his son, right? And he might be teaching this person over here certain truths that they need to know at that particular time, and then he's teaching you other things. So you grab hold of some truth, and then they're grabbing hold of some truth, and we need to have grace that, like, God's teaching different people different things for the places that they're at. Don't try and be the Holy Spirit. Think of what Paul says in Philippians 1. And I am sure of this, there's that confidence again, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Completion. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God began the work. He's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep doing it. Notice that confidence. I am sure of this. Why is there confidence? Not because of the believer, but because of the God who stands with, who fights for, and walks with the believer. Let me just say something. If we want to see change in other people, maybe instead of nagging them or criticizing them, maybe we should express confidence in those around us. Like a genuine confidence that God can change them. They're struggling with something. Like, give them the confidence here that, that the scriptures have. Like, hey, like, you can walk through this. You can overcome this. This begetting sin, you can have victory. Again, not because of who they are in and of themselves, but because of who God is, what he has done. So instead of criticism, maybe we look towards encouragement. Brother, sister, yes, you can overcome this. Come on, let me help you. Let me pray with you. Let me walk with you. Brother, you can defeat this sin. Sister, you can walk in the light. Encouragement, confidence. And we need that. We need confidence instilled from others that are, that are believing and trusting. Listen, many, many, many people have done many, many great things because of people around them who encouraged them and who believed in them and encouraged them and trusted and said, hey, you can do this. 
You can do this. We need that. We need brothers and sisters encouraging us on, spurring us on towards loving good deeds, as Hebrews talks about. I mean, we live in, man, we live in a completely upside-down world. Completely upside-down world. It doesn't know left from right. It calls evil good and good evil. The prophets talked about it. It happened back then. It's happening today. We saw a Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, can you provide a definition for the word woman? What'd she say? No, I can't. Not in this context. I'm not a biologist. Now think about what she acknowledged in her response, by the way. I found it a little bit humorous because biology is actually the place to go. She put it exactly where the category belongs. It's not gender studies. It's not sociology. But biology. So without meaning to, she pointed to where the answer could be found. But here's the thing. You know, the media is, is wanting us and saying, hey, first black woman nominated to the Supreme Court. We should be talking about what a great achievement this is. But here's the thing. You take away the achievement of the moment if you can't even divine, define the thing being achieved. Black woman, if you can't even define woman, you're taking away the moment of supposedly what's being achieved. Do you see that? God is giving this nation over to a debased mind. It's Romans 1. You're seeing it. It is the commentary for our day. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 1.28. Sins once thought heinous and unmentionable are promoted and talked about on TV regularly. They're all over the internet. It's proudly paraded around. And we're seeing this fight for the dictionary. That's what it is. Do you know what they're doing? They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Look at Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, verse 22. And that's what our culture is doing. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What is the result of this? It's actually about five or six verses earlier in Romans verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress 
the truth. They're suppressing the truth. So they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. What does the creature desire? I mean, that's the question. What do you want? Give it what it wants. Feed it the thing it craves. And we bow down to its desires and wants. Whatever it demands, we give it. But let me say something. Christian, don't be guilty of the same thing. Because any sinful desires of, your, of yours that you put before the Lord, you worship the creature instead of the creator. Your bank account is more in control of you than you are of it, and you're worshiping the creature. Your browser history shows you worship the creature and bow down to the goddess of sex instead of the true and living God. You're worshiping the creature. Your speech pours forth putrid words that soil the ears that hear it. You're worshiping the creature. You're showing there is no fear of God in you. Repent of that. Here's a letter from a skeptic. This is what we're up against. A 17-year-old said this. You ask me my religious views. You know I think that I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions, that is, all mythologies, to give them their proper name, are merely man's own inventions. Christ as much as Loki. Superstition, of course, in every age has held the common people, but in every age the educated and thinking ones have stood outside it, though usually outwardly conceded to it for convenience. Of course, mind you, I'm not laying down as a certainty that there is nothing outside the material world. Considering the discoveries that are always being made, this would be foolish. Whatever any new light can be got as to such matters, I will be glad to welcome it. In the meantime, I am not going back to the bondage of believing in any old and already became superstition. You know, we know people who could write a letter like this. And we know people who embrace these ideas. But there is hope for them yet. This letter was written by C.S. Lewis before he got saved. The one who called himself the most reluctant convert. Try as he might to deny God, at the end of the day, he couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him. He realized the truth of who God was. May we pray for others to that end, which leads me to my final point. Because the Lord is faithful, we know he hears our prayers and faithfully replies. Look how this section ends. In verse 5 he says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. But again, what precedes it? The confidence we have in the Lord. Because he is faithful, because he's shown himself to be true time and time again, we know he hears our prayers and faithfully replies. And look what we find out about this triune God. May the Lord, talking about here Jesus, direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Don't be tempted to think 
we're being asked to talk about our love for God or our steadfastness for Christ. That's not what we want anything dependent upon. Trust me, look at your own heart, you'll see it as well. No, it's talking about the love that God has for us. It's talking about how Christ is steadfast for us. It is grounded in what they have done and who they are. We're being shown here who the anchor is. The anchor is the triune God. This is where it's grounded. It's grounded in the love of God, his love for us. It's grounded in the steadfastness of Christ, his steadfastness for us. And this is, this is a prayer here for what? For our hearts to be directed to this love, for our hearts to be directed to this steadfastness, for us to, to reflect on those things. Don't be reflecting on how much you, you love God. Don't be reflecting on how steadfast you are for Christ. You're going to be disappointed, definitely at times, for sure. And if you start getting puffed up, then you prove the point as well. Don't, don't depend on that. What your heart should be directed toward is how much God loves you. What your heart should be directed toward is how steadfast Christ is for you. He is the anchor. The Father is the anchor. The triune God is the anchor upon which we place our confidence. It's grounded in him. And who is he? I mean, think of, of, of God, our heavenly Father, the giver of life, our protector, our provider, the forgiver of sins. What about his son, Jesus our Savior, our Redeemer, the conqueror of death, our propitiation. Everything is grounded in what God does for us. What did the Father do? He sent the Son. Steve mentioned it earlier, poured out his wrath on the Son instead of on us. Raised him up again. And what did the Son do for us? Covenanted with the Father to lay down his life for us. To take up his life again. To defeat death. To defeat Satan. And over and over and over again, if it was just up to us, guess what? We would have, we would have forfeited those blessings uh, a million times. If it was only solely up to us. And if it was in our power to stay in the grip and the grace of Christ, we would have forfeited it over a million times. But guess what? Thankfully, it's not. God is faithful. And though, yes, our actions probably have forfeited it, God through his son Jesus, continually forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. Wipes that slate clean. He is faithful. Here's how 2 Timothy says it, real short and sweet. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That should give you hope. Because all of us have been, at a time, pretty faithless. We've let the Lord down time and time again. He remains faithful. He is a faithful God. He's working in our lives to make us more like his son. He's working in others' lives, doing a great work. He hears and answers our prayers, so let's keep praying. Let's keep beseeching his throne. Listen, this is a gracious and loving God who deserves us to trust him every single step of the way. We can put confidence in this God. We can, we can trust this God, the one, the only, the true, the living God, the faithful and true. Friends, if you've not yet trusted in this amazing God for the first time, I encourage you today to do that. 
Have you known this God as, as yours? Have you known him not just as, as the living God, but as your heavenly father? Because he is a very, very near to us God. He's not just high and up and away. He is, but he's also very near to us, very close to us. And his, what he desires is for all men everywhere to what? Repent. To repent. Repent and believe. The wrath that is being poured out, that will be poured out, he wants you to avoid that. That's why he sent his son Jesus, to avoid the wrath, to be having a right relationship with him, to have forgiveness of sins. If you've ever had your sins forgiven by God, it is the most glorious and beautiful thing. Nothing compares to that. Your sins wiped away. You made right in relationship to God. Your relationship with him restored. It's beautiful. And it's made possible for each person here. But yes, that key word is trust. 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 Do you trust that what God did in Christ was enough? And then will you bow down to him and serve him, the creator, instead of the creature? Will you serve the creator and stop serving yourself? Will you turn away from your own desires and selfishness and turn towards him? That's repentance. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself. Confess your sins. Repent of them. Trust in Christ, and you will have the gift of eternal life. He offers it. The gift is offered to all. I encourage you to take it. Let's pray. Lord, we, we say that you are a faithful God, and you've been faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful to us time and time and time again, even when we have not been faithful to you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that everything you say is true. Thank you that you are there with us every step of the way, that whatever words you utter will come to pass. that you have shown yourself faithful, you continue to show yourself faithful, and we can trust you, our great God. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has never yet trusted in you today. Touch their hearts. Let them trust in you for the first time. Grant to them a saving faith. Give them the gift of salvation. And let them know the sweetness of the forgiveness of sins through your son, Jesus. The sweetness of having a relationship with you. Where everything else in comparison falls way short. Thank you for your love and your mercy. That you are so good to us every single day.
Go before us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.